You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. All right, we are in Daniel chapter 5 today, so if you have your Bibles, feel free to pull those out. If you don't, you're welcome to grab any in the back there on the rack. You can take them home with you. They can be your very own Bible if you would want to. We're going to read the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 31. So we've got a task in front of us today. This is a very famous chapter in the book of Daniel. I feel like every chapter of Daniel is a famous chapter, but this one is as well. So Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who, which you reminded me last week, the number was 53 times I said the word Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I won't say it that much this week, but Nebuchadnezzar is gone. His rule has lasted 42 years in the land of Babylon. He has died. And, and shortly after his rule, after his death, uh, a matter of 25 years, his kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, is about to be wiped off the map under the king Belshazzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was a very flawed man, as we remember. Uh, he was not the most humble person by nature, but he was the golden head that was on the image that was given to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And so his kingdom, his power, his might was the wonder of the world at the time. It's still one of the more supreme kingdoms that have ever existed in mankind's history. And so King Belshazzar is the fourth in line of succession after Nebuchadnezzar, and he is not even a speck, a piece of dust on the statue or the image that is in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. He is a weasel, uh, he's a conniver, he's a little man, and he will be dealt with swiftly. Uh, and da Daniel chapter 5 is a story uh, of caution for us. There is a warning in here that we should not forget that the fundamental purpose of humanity of all of God's creatures, both in creation and us creatures, is to reveal the glory of God, to display his worth, his beauty, his might, his character in the world through how we live, how we work, and how we worship. And that is ultimately for our joy. But what we see in Belshazzar is that God will not be robbed of his glory. He will be either glorified in a humanity that has humbled themselves to love and serve him, or he will be glorified by bringing to ruin a humanity that reviles and forgets him. Either way, through those who reveal him or those who revile him, he will be edified as the most high God who rules the kingdom of men. Let us pray and then we'll enter our text. Uh, Lord, we come before you and, and we confess that we do need you. What a beautiful cry, Lord. We need you. And, and that dependency, that need for you is for our good. It's for our joy. And so, Lord, we come before you today as humble creatures knowing that we need you. And we ask that you would bring your word to life through your spirit. Lord, that you would take these words that are written and you would bring them to life, bring conviction and joy and gladness. Use them as your spirit sees fit. 
And we pray this through the blood of Jesus, who is our righteousness and hope. Amen. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Now, this is not just a social endeavor. This is a wild party. And it is not a normative thing in this day for kings to drink in front of their court. That would be a very taboo thing. In front of the court is not allowed, let alone thousands of lords that have gathered in his presence. That would be unheard of. A king that is in a drunken state can be taken advantage of. Others can conspire against him. They may even try to kill him. Or they can use the actions of the king in an altered state against him later down the line. The fact that King Belshazzar is getting drunk in front of his court makes him a fool. But more than that, it makes it aware to us that he thinks that he is indestructible, that he has not tasted the fallenness of the world. He believes himself to be better than this. And so Belshazzar is the example of somebody who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. He lived in a wealth, in opulence, in a culture that he didn't secure, he didn't establish. He never knew the burden and the struggle of the common man. He was entitled. His daddy, Nebonidas, uh, conspires with him to assassinate the king before him. And uh, Belshazzar does not get his hands dirty. Nebuchadnezzar carries out the dirty work. And then he hands part of the kingdom to Belshazzar to rule alongside of himself. He is just a wretched man. And not only that, does he, he carries the title uh, as the king of Babylon, a title that was brought to great heights and prestige under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now he holds that title that is honored in the world, a title that he did not build himself. He lives in Babylon, which is the most fortified city in the known world in that day. Uh, Herodotus, who's a Greek historian, wrote in 460 BC that the entire city of Babylon was encircled by giant walls that were 10 to 14 miles in length. They were 80 feet wide, and they were some 335 feet tall. That's like a 23-story building. That's a picture of indestructibility. And so he has lived a privileged life. He's never wanted. He's never longed. He's never feared. He's never struggled. He lives in a fortified city. His daddy does his dirty work. He has more money and resources than he knows what to do with. His position brings him worship as a supreme leader and affords to him great power and control. And so let's see what he does with all of it. Let's look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, and stone. 
And so look, this party has just taken a bit of a turn. It's more debaucherous than I have words to express to you. It involves many women, passion, drunkenness. And in his drunken stupor, the king commands that they bring these vessels that were once housed in Jerusalem, in the tabernacle, that were, that were secured and stolen by King Nebuchadnezzar that we read about in chapter 1. He wants them brought to him so he can feast with them. Now, we're reminded that these vessels were a part of the tabernacle. They were a part of some of the ceremonies that the high priest would perform in the tabernacle for the forgiveness of sins, for worship and honoring and fellowshipping with Yahweh. These are sacred vessels that are being taken and used in profane ways. But more than that, Belshazzar praises the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone with these holy vessels. This is blasphemy. And so the objects here of his worship reveal to us the identity of his God. The name of his God is Belshazzar. It is himself. He is not singing praises to the gods of gold and silver and iron and bronze and wood and stone as we might sing praises to our King Jesus because we love and we serve him. No, he is praising these objects because of how well they serve him. These materials, because he possesses them, brings to him a wealth and a position that he would not have. And so what happens to Belshazzar after this party? Well, verse 5 says this. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked. Now, there's no mention of the state of his bowels in the scripture, but we can be safe to assume there's some action going on there as well. This isn't Casper, the friendly little ghost that is in the room with him. This is the presence of God manifest in a floating head that Belshazzar is seeing. God's Glory is in the room, and we know it by the way that Belshazzar is acting. Anytime in Scripture that we hear about the glory of God, it is often expressed as a heaviness or a weight that when it descends sort of displaces the fabric of creation and humanity. The, the glory of God as it was fallen on Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given, uh, created earthquakes and loud roars of thunder. Uh, those who are in the presence of God's glory through angels are often moved to fear as we remember Mary being told that she would conceive the Christ child was moved and was afraid. And, and many others are moved to be prostrate on the ground. God has entered the room in Babylon and he has a message for Belshazzar. He's not in flesh, God, that is, and he's not fully unveiled, but he's there because instantaneously Belshazzar is sober. He loses color. He trembles in his thought, and he falls to the floor in panic. This is where the phrase, if you've heard it, the writing is on the wall, comes from here in Daniel chapter 5. Now, the ancient city of Babylon is located near the modern city of Baghdad in Iraq. Now, certainly, we can't prove through our, our means today, that there was a floating hand that existed in those times. But there is something interesting that archaeologists have found. They have found a throne room for the kings in the palace of the Babylonian kings that was 56 feet wide by 173 feet long, and the walls were white with plaster. 
Belshazzar thinks that he is untouchable. He sees himself as invulnerable. He acts as if he's immortal. And the degree of his terror which is mentioned three times in this one chapter. His color changes, he falls to the floor, he's trembling. The degree of his trembling reveals to us the depth of his pride. He believed that he could do anything that he wanted to do. And so if he wanted to drink in front of his lords, if he wanted to take the vessels that were stolen from the tabernacle in Jerusalem and profane and blasphemy them, he believed that he could. The degree of his humiliation that we see reveals the depth of his pride. Because Yahweh, the one true God of the universe, was mythical to him. He would have learned about him in his youth when he heard about the stories of Nebuchadnezzar, of his humbling, but he seems to have dismissed those stories as he grew older and more powerful, and life began to center around himself. Now in the presence of the holy God, he realizes his mistake. He knows he's in danger. The scripture is very clear for us. James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us that God opposes the proud. In James 4, 6, but it shows favor or grace to the humble. Humility is not optional in the kingdom of God. It is required of us that we know who we are as created beings. But more than that, that we know the glory and the sovereignty of the God that we serve. And the prouder that we become as humans, the greater our fall will be. Verse 7, it says, The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So the king is bribing these men to get what he wants. He's promising them status and wealth and power. Purple is the color of royalty. The world allures us in the very same manner by trying to make promises to us over these very same things. But the lesson that Daniel has taught us is this, is that the most high God rules the kingdom of men. Mankind cannot give you what it does not possess. All it can tell you is lies. Only God can do that. Only God can give us what we need. Now, there has been some debate in this historical record of the existence of Belshazzar. There have been questions around his existence. Many believe that he did not exist, but there have been more recent discoveries that actually affirm his existence, and more than that, affirm his co-regency or his shared rule with his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, here again, I say that to you to remind you that our scripture, time and time and time again, is proven to be historically accurate and true. And we see it in the story of Daniel over and over again. The fact that they're going to become third in line edifies to us that there's Nebuchadnezzar, there's Belshazzar, and then whoever he wants to reward is next. So saying that they would be third in line is completely accurate according to the historical record. Verse 8 says this, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and here we go again, and his color changed, and his lords looked perplexed. 
The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father... Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, and Chaldeans, and astrologers because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. And so after the failure of these wise men to read the handwriting, the queen enters the room. Now this isn't Belshazzar's wife. This is either a wife of one of the other kings that had previously died, or some believe it is the youngest queen of Nebuchadnezzar. And so she tells them about Daniel, who helped the predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And and the scripture here says that he is the father of Belshazzar. We have to understand that this is an adopted title, that in this day, if you were in the line of a great king like Nebuchadnezzar, you would be considered a son, adopted into their line. Now, we don't know where Daniel's been. Uh, Maybe he decided to go into retirement, More probable that he is just knocked out of the way by previous leadership, but he is believed to be 80 years old now here in chapter 5. He has been living in exile for some 60 years in Babylon. And so let's see what Daniel has to say to Belshazzar, verse 14. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He, He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, 
And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And so maybe you notice that Daniel approaches Belshazzar in quite a different fashion than he approaches Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel always seemed troubled any time he was going to give bad news to King Nebuchadnezzar. But here with Belshazzar, he's direct and he's unemotional. And so we get the sense that for, for all the faithfulness that Daniel has in exile in Babylon, he saw King Belshazzar has lacking. And as he always has, he rejects his rewards. Daniel tells Belshazzar what it is that he will be held accountable to. Now notice that he doesn't take him to task over his drunkenness, over his idolatry, over his idolatry. Daniel mentions the profaning of God's vessel and the blaspheming of those vessels, but none of those things will be what Belshazzar will be held account over. Daniel doesn't deal with the root or the, the, the fruit of Belshazzar's sin. He deals with the root of all sin, the refusal to honor and glorify the God that had given him breath and life, that all that he has and who made all that he is. It is that that Belshazzar will be judged by. The root of all sin is to deny God for who he is, for what he has made, and what he has done. Daniel reminds him of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and he says that you knew all of these things. You knew them. You knew the story of his pride. You knew the story of humility. You knew the story of his beastly appearance, and you denied it, and you forgot it. You didn't learn. You lifted yourself up in pride in front of the presence of God, Despite his graceful warning given to you through this one man, Nebuchadnezzar, you have not learned your ways. And now we will see his consequence here in verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, Mene, Tinkel, and Parson are common Aramaic words that would have been used in Babylon in that day. Now, it's interesting that these so-called wise men, this council in front of King Belshazzar in Babylon could not figure out what it said. Now, some suspect that these words were written in a vertical fashion and kind of squeezed together. Others think that these words were kind of written without spaces. But whatever the deal is, that these wise men cannot understand their meaning. Daniel simply comes into the room and separates them into their parts. Mene is an Aramaic word for measure or number. Tekel infers weighing. And parson means divided. Belshazzar's days are numbered. His 
kingdom has been weighed and he has been found lacking. He's going to be eliminated and the kingdom will be divided by, between the Medes and the Persians who are on his doorstep and he doesn't know it. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, the Chaldean king, Belshazzar, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so history notes that the Medo-Persian army conquer this massive, impenetrable fortress in Babylon by going upriver and damming the Euphrates River. They create a low flow in water level. And then under the cover of night, the armies of Mede and Persia walk under the walls of Babylon on dry land, and they take the kingdom by force without a single battle. Now, there is an interesting thing in the historical record that says uh, that the massive drunken parties in Babylon were also a part of the reason why the kingdom fell so quickly. Now, here's a bit of comedy or tragedy, the way that you might want to look at it. In all the mayhem that is happening in this night of being captured, King Nebonidas, Belshazzar's dad, flees and escapes the city. Daddy has left son to face the music. Now, I think it's interesting here that as Daniel is interpreting this message, he knows what it means. He knows what it means before he tells the king. If you and I are in front of a king that is as small and petty and unstable like Belshazzar, and we know that his end is sure, I, maybe you, would probably tell him something pleasing, maybe some alternative facts, out of concern for what this little petty man might do to me. But Daniel, again, shows us the courage and integrity of one who believes that God is real and that he is our only hope in life and death. He does the will of God no matter the consequences. And so what does this mean for us? What does Daniel 5 mean for us? I had an opportunity uh, just a few years ago to, to speak at a, a, a high school youth conference. And during one of, of the sessions, I was trying to convey the necessity of humility, of, of understanding our need for God, of knowing the joy that is there for those who depend on God. And I tried to talk to these students about their standing, their smallness, in comparison to the population of the world. I said that in light of the fact that you are one of 10,000 people that live in your city, one of a few million people who live in your state, one of, of, of uh, 300 million plus that live in your country, and in light of the fact that you're one of simply of one of 8 billion people that live around the world, with all of that said, I said this phrase. I said, you are not that special. And it was as if I killed a puppy on stage. The oppression and offense was great. The collective gasp that echoed through the room that I had the audacity to say that they were not special was palpable. And look, 
you can be special to your family. You can be special to your moms and dads. You can be special to your pets. You're not the center of the universe. We are not special in the scheme of the story of God. We are but a vapor. Belshazzar's humiliation reminds us of that, that pride leads to folly and it leads to destruction. You know, in one of the recent books, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons wrote, uh, did a survey of over 17,000 people in our country, and, one, and some of the things that they found were, were pretty interesting. They said that 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. That furthermore, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. And that 91% affirmed the statement, to find yourself, you must look within yourself. And look, I'm not here to condemn an enjoyable life. But those are the phrases that you would find in a diary written by Belshazzar. They elevate a life where we forsake the God that breathes life into us, who rules the kingdom of man, who has given us all that we are and all that we have. The writing is on the wall for those who worship the things of the earth to serve them. Yet for those who ignore God cannot, for the sake of their own life, see that writing. Even though it's plain and it's obvious, they cannot see it because they have grown so in love with themselves. Only those who love and obey God can see the folly and doom that comes. And so, look, we don't worship the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stones. We worship the God that made those things. And we worship the God that made us. Andrew Wilson, in one of his recent books called The God of All Things, speaks out one of the great Christians of the past, Augustine, imaged the gifts of God in creation like boats that take us back to our homeland. That C.S. Lewis talks about creation as the sunbeams that we follow back to the sun so we enjoy not just the object of goodness, but the source of good. Everything points to the beauty and the character of God. And there is a grace that is woven in the fabric of humanity that teaches us our need for God, that we are dependent. Every single one of you in this room needs to sleep. Not right now, but you need sleep. You need rest. You need food. You need water. You need shelter. If you did not have those things, you would die. Many of you in this room, for the sake of all of those in your house this morning, needed a cup of coffee. Many of you are not here today because you're sick and you're dependent on medicine. As our bodies age, they gracefully remind us that we are limited, we are mortal, we are weak, and we are dependent. And friend, this is God's grace to us. That you realize that you are made to depend on the goodness and the love of God. That all of creation, creation all of our creatureliness edifies this. It is most joyful to do the thing you were created to do. It is most 
joyful to do the thing that you create it to do. Any creation that doesn't operate in the manner in which it was created to function will find hardship and resistance. If a clock wants to believe that it's a sledgehammer, it will find its demise. If a dog wants to believe it's an owl, it will run off a cliff. You were made to love and enjoy God. You were made to love and enjoy God. This means honoring him in how we live and how we work and how we rest and in what we hope in. We honor him by fulfilling the roles that God has designed for us, by serving one another, by helping those in need, being and doing as God created us with gratitude promotes our joy because we're doing the very thing that we were created to do. Living in denial of who he is will bring with it folly and destruction, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. It is not lost on you that we live in a world that it centers itself on pleasing ourselves. And we are most desperately sick because of it. But we cannot see often the handwriting on the wall because far more often we are in love with ourselves than we are our God. Belshazzar was found guilty and judged as a glory thief because his arrogance ignored the caution and the humiliation of one man, Nebuchadnezzar. One example in Nebuchadnezzar. And one sentence written by the hand of God on the wall condemned him. And so friends, how much more should we be judged in forgetting? And knowing the story of God's grace in our life and seeing his goodness and mercy extended to those around us and in knowing that not only do we have one sentence written by the hand of God, but we have a whole inspired text written by the hand of God that displays his might and his worth. How much worse might it be for us to forget that God rules the kingdom of men. Friends, don't ever forget that God will not be denied his glory. It will either be revealed in a humanity that reveals it in humility by loving and serving him, or it will be seen as he brings down those who revile and hate him. God's glory will be known. But here's the good thing for us. His glory is our joy. Friends, don't forget. And what we hope in today is that this isn't the end for us. It's the end for Belshazzar. It is the end for us. It's not. All the writing that is written about us and our sin can be washed away by understanding one little phrase that Jesus said. It is finished. That God, if we are faithful to repent, to confess our sins. God is faithful to forgive us. That we would realize that God's grace extends to me even in this, the worst of myself. And it displays to us that even the love of God can find us here. Friends, let us not forget. Because there is none above him, there is none below him, and all of time is in his hands. And we were made to love and enjoy him with all of our lives.